past few weeks has not only been to come at this thing from a, a number of different angles in terms of thinking, but, but also a variety of different biblical genres, showing the beauty of this one and same God, the beauty of this one and same overarching story of redemption in Jesus Christ, in and through the diversity of genres that make up God's word, including historical narratives and New Testament letters. This morning, we're gonna continue that trend as we dive into the songbook of scripture, as you've heard James unpack just a few moments ago, the book of Psalms. Many of us have likely seen over the past few weeks uh, music come to bear in so many different ways, whether it be certain bands or artists putting on house shows to try to cheer us up or benefit concerts to try to raise money for those in need. Uh, Even Jimmy Fallon's home version of The Tonight Show and his musical guests that attempt to draw us into a song if but for just a moment. It should come as no surprise to, to those of us who are Christians who know that singing has been weaved into the very fabric of the universe for the glory of God. Angels have been singing God's praises from the foundations of the world. Human beings have been singing God's praises since Adam burst forth in song upon seeing the beauty of the creation of woman. God's people have had a song on their lips and their hearts throughout the course of redemptive history, a song that will carry all the way into eternity, filling the new heaven and earth with lyrics and chord progressions to the praise of God's glorious grace. Part of the reason that we're so committed to continuing to incorporate worship through song into this time together, knowing that that the song word and truth of God, it has a unique way of comforting us, a unique way of encouraging us, a unique way of satisfying our souls. And so with that said, I invite you to open up to Psalm chapter 16 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't possess a Bible, as I've said for several weeks now, please go to our staff and leadership page on our website, find an email address and send an email to someone on our staff saying, I don't own or possess a Bible and we will two day ship a Bible to you so that you can have it not only for our Sunday gatherings, but every other day of the week. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll dive into the scriptures together. God, I pray that you would birth a song in our hearts as we dive into a song that finds itself nestled into the very scriptures that you've given us so that we might know who you are, so that we might know what you have done, are doing, and will do in this great story of redemption. I pray that we would walk away from our time together this morning declaring, like David, you are my portion, you are my cup, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that that wouldn't just be good confessional theology that rolls off of our lips, but theology and truth that our hearts functionally grab hold of, that that become lyrics in the way that we engage others in conversation, both real and digital in this reality in which we find ourselves, lyrics that would be part of our very lives, the, the way that we Put the gospel into practice. God, would you do that as we look at your word together now? Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you to give us eyes and and ears to see and hear, to open our hearts to receive that which you have for us. Would you do that? In the name of Jesus, to the glory of God the Father, I pray. Amen. 
So the book of Psalms, it's one of the most beloved books in all of the Bible. Martin Luther once famously said, in the Psalms, we look into the heart of all the saints and we seem to gaze into fair pleasure gardens, into heaven itself indeed, where blooms in sweet, refreshing, gladdening flowers of holy and happy thoughts about God and all his benefits. The great springtime quote. Book of Psalms, it's been referred to as the hymn book of the Old Testament a collection of songs to be sung by God's people, as James mentioned, in response to his goodness, glory, and grace. The Psalms were sung in the temple by God's people in corporate worship as they gathered together in assembly, and they were also sung in private times of devotion, much as they are today. Having inspired a a great many songs and liturgies, oftentimes included in little pocket-sized New Testaments, though the book of Psalms is not part of the New Testament, That's how significant and influential this book of the Bible truly is, a book that has the power to not only inform, but transform. Tremper Longman in his commentary on the book of Psalms says this, he says, the Psalms appeal to the whole person. They demand a total response. The Psalms inform our intellect, arouse our emotions, direct our wills, and stimulate our imaginations. When we read the Psalms with faith, we come away changed and not simply informed. In the Psalms, we come face-to-face with both God and ourselves. We see the fullness and beauty of who God is, and we encounter the fullness of the human condition and experience, which is why the book of Psalms is filled with such a categorical diversity, filled with not only Psalms of praise, but also Psalms of lament, not only Psalms of thanksgiving and remembrance, but Psalms of confidence and wisdom. And what that means is that regardless of how you're holding up this morning, the Psalms are a good place to go and to let your soul steep. The entire hymn book ultimately pointing us to the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the only one truly worthy of our song. We sing Psalms of praise to him as our savior, king, and coming judge. We sing Psalms of lament to him as our sympathetic high priest and advocate. We sing psalms of thanksgiving to him for who he is and what he has done, is doing, and will do for us. We sing psalms of remembrance to him as we survey all of redemptive history that finds its fulfillment in him. We sing psalms of confidence to him because he's a trustworthy and sure foundation. We sing psalms of wisdom to him because he's wisdom personified and the very source of wisdom. The heart sings of that in which it delights. And so my hope this morning is that we might experience something of the encouragement, comfort, and healing that can only be found in the lyrics of a song. That we might delight in God and seeing his goodness, glory, and grace revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And that in seeing him and delighting in him, that our lives might become more and more a song of praise, a song that those around us simply cannot ignore as we declare its redemptive lyrics with our lips and display those very same lyrics with our lives, particularly and especially in the midst of all the uncertainty that surrounds us. As we pick up in verse one, David says these words, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 16 is what's known as a psalm of confidence filled with the language of trust in the Lord. It's a psalm that actually increases in confidence over the course of these brief 11 verses. David begins with a plea, a petition, preserve me, a petition that has everything to do with his source of refuge, his greatest hope of safety. 
Notice that he doesn't say, preserve me, O God, as I seek refuge in things other than you. Notice that he doesn't say, preserve me, O God, as I dock my boat at other harbors. David's cry for help comes out of the soil of a heart having run to God for refuge, knowing that God is our safest harbor in the midst of any storm, even the storm of death, as David will go on to say soon enough in this very psalm. Verse two, he continues, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David incorporates two names for God into the earliest lyrics of this song. The first word for the Lord being the name Yahweh, God's name in relation to his covenant people. The second word for Lord being the word Adonai, master and ruler. What David declares is, I say to my covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who intimately relates to and with his covenant people, you are my master, you are my ruler. You are worthy of my glad submission as the preeminent sovereign king of the universe. Not only my safest harbor, but my greatest treasure. Any and all other things that might classify as good in my life, all those things tracing their way back to you, my greatest good. Without you, there is no good. My safe harbor, my supreme treasure. Verse three, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Surrounded by a storm, David's heart delights in the company of the godly. Those who treasure God above all things. Those who trust in God above all things. I'm not sure of what your experience has been over the last few weeks, but one of the great blessings for me has been the opportunity to come together with other pastors, church leaders in our network, and to pray together and brainstorm together, knowing that we're doing all of that with the same worldview brought to the table, the same foundation of hope in Jesus Christ. It's been such a delight to to share and to pray with each other in the context of a community group, to hear others praying to the living God, to hear others talking about how the gospel is informing their thinking and their living. It's been a delight to come together in the context of a town hall and prayer meeting and to talk about how to meet the needs of people in our church and in the community through the lens of the gospel and to pray together in that kind of corporate way. What a joy it is in the midst of uncertain times like these to relate to and with those who deeply love the Lord. Those who like David declare, the Lord is my safest harbor and greatest treasure. He goes on in verse four to say, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In contrast to verse three, David declares the folly of turning to false gods and functional saviors. The folly of not, not only turning away from the Lord, our safest harbor and greatest treasure, but turning to other objects of worship that can and will only leave us sorrowful in the end. That language of multiplied sorrows in verse four, hearkening back to the earliest chapters of the Bible when sin tore into the fabric of God's good creation, sin's curse of multiplied pain and sorrow in childbearing, in toil. Here, David declares that false gods and functional saviors, they can only lead to the same kind of multiplied sorrows. He used the language of the prophet Jeremiah to turn from the fountain of living waters to broken cisterns that can hold no water. It can and will only leave us thirsty in the end. 
Blaise Pascal, the famous French philosopher and mathematician once said, there once was in man a true happiness of which now remains to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent, the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. David refuses to drink from empty wells when the fountain of everlasting joy is at his fingertips. I would ask the question of all of us, what are those empty wells that God is revealing to us in the midst of the uncertainty that surrounds us? The false gods, the functional saviors that he's prying our grip from so that we might more deeply cling to him and find our happiness in him. Verse five, he continues, the Lord is my portion, my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Here, David exalts in the sovereignty of God. The lines or boundaries having fallen in pleasant places for him. In one sense, representing God's provision and sustenance. A reminder for us that that we too have so much to be thankful for. So many good and gracious gifts from God meant to overwhelm our hearts with gratitude. So easy, so easy to forget, especially when we find ourselves in the midst of hard times. Why we've incorporated a time of thanksgiving into our community group gatherings, that we might declare like David the many ways that God has been so gracious and generous to us. In an even more significant sense, God himself being David's greatest inheritance. David declares that nothing satisfies like God, my chosen portion and my cup. Nothing nourishes like God, nothing sustains like God. He's the choicest meat, he's the finest wine. The one to whom those who have spent their resources in the failing pursuit of happiness can come to and drink from the well that never runs dry. He goes on in verse seven to say, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. David has declared up to this point the Lord to be his refuge, safe harbor in the midst of the storm. He's declared the Lord to be his treasure, his greatest good. He's declared the Lord to be his sovereign, governing all things in the midst of the uncertainty that surrounds him. He now adds to that list of excellencies, declaring the Lord to be his wisdom, directing his steps, instructing his heart. I don't know about you, but this verse gives me so much comfort right now because there is no one-size-fits-all COVID-19 playbook for the people of God. We're being brought face-to-face with our desperate need for him, for his wisdom, as we all try to sort out what it means to walk in wisdom in the midst of a global pandemic, isn't it good news to hear David declare that the Lord, Yahweh, is a God who gives his people counsel. He gives us the wisdom that we're, we're so desperate for, that we so desperately need. He continues in verse eight, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Remember, David began this psalm with a plea, a petition, followed by seven verses declaring the excellencies of the Lord. Notice that by the time we get to verse eight, David has an unshakable confidence, an unshakable calm. 
that what began with a plea for preservation, it's now a confident declaration that David will not be shaken. How, how do we move from trembling petitions to unshakable confidence? It's by soaking in the truth of who God is and who he is for us. Again, he's our safest harbor. He's a refuge in the midst of the storm. He's our greatest treasure, shining with a, a brilliance that outshines all other things. He's our sovereign king, holding our lives in the palm of his trustworthy hand. He's our unfailing wisdom, making known to us the path of life, verse 11. Which leads David to declare one of the most glorious words in all of Psalm 16. Therefore. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for I no, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. My, my heart is glad, David says, my whole being rejoices. Why? Because David knows that death will not have the final word. I love the way the Gospel Transformation Bible gives commentary on this verse. It says this, the blessed alternative to self-trust is to be set on a solid foundation that not even death can unsettle. Death becomes a door instead of a wall, an entrance ramp, not an exit into the presence of God. David knows here in verses nine and 10 that even death itself is nothing more than a door into the arms of his safest refuge, his greatest treasure, his unfailing wisdom, his sovereign king. He closes out this song in verse 11 with these lyrics. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not partial joy, not joy with an expiration date. Fullness of joy, never lacking, pleasures forevermore, never ending. These are clearly the words of a Christian hedonist, a man who knows that the greatest, most lasting pleasure in all of the universe is found in God, not the winds of circumstance. David knows that in life or death, nothing will keep him from a full and forever joy a joy that can only be known through Jesus Christ, the one in whom Psalm 16 finds its ultimate fulfillment. David knew, if you go back and read 2 Samuel chapter seven, the establishment of the Davidic covenant, David knew God told him that he would eventually die. David knew that God would establish one of his descendants on the throne. David knew that the promised descendant would be the last in the line of kings, the eternal king of a never-ending kingdom, a king who would not see corruption like David. If you look at Acts chapter two, Peter's great speech on the day of Pentecost, Peter looks back on Psalm 16 and he declares the ultimate fulfillment of this very Psalm that we look at this morning in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The one who established the true path of life to use David's words leading to eternal gladness in the presence of God the one who turned death from a punishment into a doorway. Jesus was swallowed up by death on behalf of sinners like you and me as our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. But the pangs of death could not hold him. We will celebrate that in full next week on Easter Sunday. 
Jesus burst forth from the grave in triumph, declaring victory over our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He, he is, in fact, the Holy One who did not see corruption, verse 10. The one whose soul was not abandoned to Sheol. If you're not a Christian, I invite you this morning to stop drinking from empty wells when the fountain of everlasting joy is at your fingertips. I invite you to put your faith in Jesus to see the cross and empty tomb as the door, the entrance ramp into the very presence of God. A God in whom you can know true peace. A God in whom you can know true joy like David. A joy that the winds of circumstance cannot take from you. No matter how hard they blow, not even the winds of a global pandemic. He's the only safe harbor. He's the only unfading treasure. He's the only preeminent sovereign. He's the only unfailing wisdom. Turn to him. Give your life to him. And if you are a Christian, my hope for us is, is this. It's that we would be a people who pursue happiness to the fullest extent, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. Tony Ranke, in his book, The Joy Project, says it this way. He says, the greatest hazard we face is not intellectual atheism, denying that God exists. Our most desperate problem is affectional atheism, refusing to believe God is the object of our greatest and most enduring joy. Not, none of us knows how this global pandemic is gonna play out in the coming days, in the coming weeks, what the effects and impact will be on our lives, what the effects and impact will be on our families, what the effects and impact will be on our churches and communities. My prayer for us is this, may God use this experience to awaken our hearts to the expulsive power of a new affection. May we taste and see that the Lord is good in both laughter and sorrow, in both dancing and mourning. May affectional atheism not get the best of us. May we not grow in our knowledge of the scriptures and our fluency of the gospel only to fall short of happiness in God. May we run to him like David as the fountain of living water. May we experience the kind of joy that can only be found in him. May our hymn book in the midst of all that surrounds us include lyrics like these. Let my sighs give way to songs that sing about your faithfulness. Let my pain reveal your glory as my only real rest. Let my losses show me all I truly have is you. May God give us the grace to cry out with the psalmist, Psalm 43, even now, you, O Lord, are my exceeding joy, my only refuge in the midst of the storm, my infinite treasure, even if all be stripped away, my unfailing wisdom illuminating the directionless dark that we find ourselves in, my sovereign king governing all things for my good, my cup, my portion, I am satisfied in you. In a moment, we're gonna to continue to worship this God that David sings about with songs of our own. We're gonna to continue to sing the truth of God, sing the word of God together. And as we do so, as I've mentioned now for several weeks, we're not going to participate in the Lord's Supper. We're gonna wait until we reconvene in this place together as the assembly of God's covenant people. 
to participate in that sacrament of the church, that it might be all the sweeter when we reconvene and do so. But that doesn't mean that you can't remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That doesn't mean that we can't celebrate who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. And so I would invite you, just as you would gathered with us in this very auditorium and preparing to receive of communion, I invite you to pause at some point between now and the end of this service to stop, to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for you and for me. To remember that through his broken body and shed blood, death is no longer a wall, but a door. No longer a punishment, but an entrance ramp into eternal happiness, eternal joy, eternal pleasure in the presence of God forever.